0: Stats educators are continually looking for ways to get students excited about the subject and help them understand all stats can help them do. One high school educator discovered one way to do that was to throw out a standard curriculum and connect lessons more closely to student interests. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Dashiell Young Saver. Young Saver is a Texas-based high school stats teacher. While teaching at a Title I school on the south side of San Antonio, Dash threw out his traditional AP stats curriculum and created lessons on topics his students cared about. Voter power, food deserts, the Spurs' chance of winning the NBA title, That year, more students at the school took and passed the AP exam than in the previous 16 years. Borrowing from his class motto of Skew the Script, Young Saver created the Skew the Script website and posted his lessons online for free. Now he leads Skew the Script's efforts to provide relevant math lessons to classrooms across the country. He also writes math lessons for the New York Times. Dash, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to ask you about that moment before you threw out the curriculum. What made you, what brought you to that point where you're like, I just got to try something else?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of my students were bored in class. And I think a lot of teachers can relate to this. You look out at your class and after reading out some textbook problem on like the heights and weights of kids and finding the mean and seeing if it's unusual, most of the kids' heads are down on the desks and there's drool coming out of their mouths. And I didn't blame my students because they're working jobs outside of school. They're supporting their family. They had real complex adult problems on their shoulders day to day. And the examples I were giving them were contrived and almost infantilizing. And so I just wanted to ask my students, okay, what do you all actually want to learn about? And that's when they told me all these topics that are now infused into the curriculum.
2: So I'm, I'm curious, what was the first lesson that you built? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think the one that comes to mind as like the first true lesson created in this frame was a lesson that we still have on the website on income segregation in the city of San Antonio. And mm. this is something that a student brought in like an article about um, how San Antonio is one of the most income segregated cities in the country. And so we, in traditionally AP stats, there's a couple of activities out there to explore sampling. One of them, probably the most famous one is called the jelly blubber activity, where you have a bunch of jellyfish on a page and you sample them in different ways to get the average size of the jellyfish. And your estimates of the average size of the jellyfish differs based on the sampling methods that you use. And the first year that I used that, it was, you know, drool on the desk.
2: Kids heads down,
1: bored out of their minds. And not not to dismiss that activity. It's it's a very good activity. Um, and it it demonstrates the concept very well. But for the students in my classroom, it just wasn't, it didn't feel very relevant. And so I made this activity where I use census data to create a map of the city of San Antonio. And we use different ways to sample the median income in the city. And if you do a cluster sample of different neighborhoods versus if you stratify your sample by race versus if you do other sorts of sampling methods, you're going to get very different estimates of median income in the city. And then that led into a discussion of school finance and what's the most fair way to do school finance based on differences in neighborhood incomes. And we have this great nonpartisan discussion about trade-offs between different sorts of systems where you're either doing balancing of funding or non-balancing of funding based on what students think is most fair.
0: That's great. It makes me think a lot. I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but like I was one of those children who, in math or stats classes, would often just sort of find myself so completely bored because it felt so abstract. And I have always been the kind of person who, if you can tell me the concrete reason I have to do something, I'm much more engaged than sort of the abstract. And I know there are people who live in the abstract that is just not my brain. And I wonder, And this sort of resonates for me because that's sort of when when I was in grad school and I started doing these stats and I'm like, this is how I have to use it for my research. I'm like, oh, yes, this is amazing. I love everything that I'm doing now. What were your what were your students responses as you were developing these lessons that was sort of coming from their interest and sort of tying it back to their lives?
1: Yeah, I think that it's so unfortunate that so many people have such a bad experience in their stats classes, whether that's in college, in grad school or in high school. And I think that partly comes from the fact that most people who end up becoming statistics instructors are the people who really like math for math's sake and who really embrace that. And uh, they rinse and repeat with, oh, stats in and of itself is a beautiful thing. And I think that is true to some extent, but there's a reason that stats as a discipline exists and it's not to study stats, it's to study the world. And the more that we can bring in the world to our stats classes and to our math classes, the more compelling it's gonna be for students. And I think the first reactions I was getting was just excitement, longer discussions, Mm -hmm. uh, students staying after the bell to chat more, and after time, more and more higher test scores which was the thing that I think was most surprising was seeing how the boosted engagement led to students taking the time to do some more studying at home, taking the time to really understand deeply what was going on behind the problems rather than just completing worksheets for compliance sake.
2: I When, I'm, when I hear you describe this, it sounds like just such a beautiful feedback loop. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you were having more fun teaching at that point.
1: Oh, definitely. and. I think this is something we hear from teachers who use our stuff is that it doesn't just make math more compelling for students. It makes math more compelling for teachers too. And I think that as as I said, math teachers, we get into this game because we love math and it can sometimes feel so draining to be in front of a room that doesn't feel that same innate love of math as a discipline and the more we can share that love of math via the things that students already care about, the more uh, we're all together in this, the more we feel like we're we're doing this together, there is something useful in this that we're taking to all of our interests and we're gonna have fun, we're gonna have also meaningful discussions and it's gonna be really purposeful in that classroom.
2: In, in one of the interviews you, you were quoted that, that I read in preparation for our chat today, you were quoted as saying, "Marching through the syllabus rather than engaging with the math was that was was to be covered." That that's sort of a different, you know, this epiphany. And I I remember having a similar epiphany in in terms of when I was teaching and watching the drool form on the desks as well. You know, and I you know if you wanted to stop a conversation, what do you do for a living? Well, I teach statistics, and you would just see people say, "Oh, that, that's wait, that's my phone." You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> So you you I, I know exactly what you're saying, but but one thing that I, I thought about was that you have to change hearts before you change heads. And it seems like what you're doing with these problems is you're you're immediately saying, what is it, what's important to you as a student? And then sort of building on that. So so as you think about framing a lesson, can you talk about kind of the ingredients of what a lesson plan looks like once you've identified a, a topic that, that you think is gonna have pretty broad appeal to the these students?
1: Definitely. So every lesson if you look on the huge group website is a narrative it's not a lesson that teaches a method it's a narrative that tells a story and that has math or statistics involved that is necessary in order to get to the climax and resolution of that story and so I think where a lot of people go wrong in trying to make math relevant or trying to make statistics relevant is that they try and force context into math. For example, like one example I always give is you might look at a textbook problem that's trying to be quote unquote relevant, like the citizens of Wakanda required the help of the Black Panther and the Black Panther is gonna get on time to the scene of a crime 20% of the time. If there were this many crimes, how many times? And it's, it's contrived and students know it's contrived and, and you get the same result, which is that students are bored and it comes off as just not real. If you can make problems where students need the tools that you're teaching them in order to get new, genuine insight into an issue they care about, all of a sudden, math is not just a thing that you added on top of the context. It is a driver of the context, and it is something worth learning, it is something compelling. And so what we do in every lesson is we have a key question, like, for example, does your vote matter? And then we explore that key question using different methods. And in this lesson on does your vote matter? We explore um, gerrymandering through sampling distributions and you need to have the sampling distributions in the simulation that we built in order to see if your vote actually does make a difference or if your vote is in a district that might be kind of diminishing your voice due to voter power distortions. then students could get a whole new sense of whether or not their vote matters. And that's a question that my students asked me that when I pulled them that first year, like, does my vote actually matter? And, And that was a way to answer that question in a way that if they didn't have that piece of math, they didn't have sampling distributions, they otherwise might not be able to answer in the same way. And then at the end of the lesson, we talk about, okay, well, the Supreme Court's gone back and forth on gerrymandering. What kind of standard could we make so that we can make sure votes really do matter across districts, and we get this re- resolution of the narrative. And we often add in all sorts of different examples. Like, for example, in that lesson, we talked about Texas's different districts that my students are in and other districts that have been gerrymandered over time and the history behind them and, and the stories behind them. And adding those stories just really adds to, to the context. And more fun examples that we might look at individuals. So for example, we have a lesson on Simpsons Paradox, and we have two WMB players in the Las Vegas Aces team, and we talk about the background of those players, how one is a tall center, and one is a short shooting guard, and that they both are all-star players, and that's what the Las Vegas Aces have done so well in recent years winning the titles. And we talk about, well, one player has a higher overall shooting percentage, and the other player has a higher two-point shooting percentage and a higher three-point shooting percentage. How is that possible? <laughs> and then it yep. seems like, what? <laughs> and then you have to use the math two-way tables, conditional probability to get to the answer of how to solve that paradox. And so the story, The narrative, the talking about those players, the talking about the team winning these titles, the talking about these mixing of skills leads into then that becoming a compelling context, whereas a student who might not know a lot about basketball or might not follow the WNBA might might otherwise turn out.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Dash Young Saver about Skew the Script. I want to ask about that motto, Skew the Script, and and the name of the project. Where did that come from, and why has that been the framing of this for you?
1: Yeah, uh, It's funny, people take it a lot of different ways that weren't the original intent, but I think are often really good.
0: (laughs) That's always how it happens, right?
1: (laughs) And um, I think, uh, so the the way it all started was in my class, I, I was very honest with my students and I talked to them about how expectations for them in our district were quite low. To give you a sense of those expectations, Nationally, about 60% of students pass the AP stats exam year on year. In my district, traditionally, the pass rate was hovering at about 2%. Oh my. Oh wow. 2% relative to 60. And I would talk to district leaders about this, and there was a lot of movement towards, well, we're just not gonna be successful in AP. Let's move to dual credit or other things that, in my view, are just kind of lowering expectations. And I, I told my students, there's a script written about you. The script written about you is that you're not going to do well on this exam because of where you come from and that you're not capable of passing this very hard test. And that script, if you look at it in terms of data is a right skew where Mm -hmm. most of the data is on the left, a lot of ones and twos on the exam and very few data on the right, very few three, fours, and fives. And we're going to skew the script the other way. We're gonna make a left skew where there's a lot of high scores and few low scores. And that's why you see on the website, the logo is left skewed distribution. So we're skewing the script the other way. And that became our motto. I started putting it at the top right-hand corner of all of our class handouts. Um, It doesn't look as well-designed as it does now, but I still have that and um, students bought in, and, and we were all about skewing the script. There is also, I think, partway through the the first year I really did this, I, I noticed there was a bit of a insidious thing going on that I hadn't realized as an educator I was doing, which is students with this kind of language started internalizing a lot of pressure based mm-hmm. on the idea that, you know, there is a script written about them, and, and they mm-hmm. need to do better on the exam in order to to fight off that stereotype. And it was creating, I think, some undue pressure on yeah. them that made this high stakes three hour test at the end of the year seem like such a do or die thing. And that was something that as an educator, you know, I was trying to get them hyped for the exam. I didn't foresee the consequence of making it no. a very nerve wracking thing. And so over time I started talking about, well, Also, just know that your performance on this one three hour test is not a determinant of who you are or where you're going to go in life. Everything that we've done this year, how hard you all have been working, how much improvement I've seen on y'all's exams in here already, but more importantly, how much I've seen you all think critically about real issues that matter and develop these skills and also develop work habits that will help you the rest of your life. That is skewing the script. That is already stuff that is going to help you for the rest of your life and is already breaking all sorts of norms and what people thought you were capable of. And no matter what this three-hour test says about you, just know that that stuff is really what matters.
2: You know, I, I really like the the, uh, the the figures. And I I when I was teaching, I would give my students three different distributions and I would ask them to argue for which grade distribution did they want to be for the class. And I'd say, yeah. and you know, someone would say normal. I said, really? You want you know you want you want everything you want A's to be as likely as F's. Uh, no, well, so I, I I love this the way that you, that you visualize yeah. this and yeah. and and shape that story. The when I when I looked at the the mission statement associated with with your efforts in your, this project. You know this idea of of bettering engagement and achievement among students that have been underserved in some sense by the educational systems, and particularly in math sciences, but also preparing students to think critically as citizens. I mean, both these really, really resonate. I, I think that our the, the name of our podcast, Stats and Stories, is is really both celebrating the importance of narrative as well as the the story elements that are the methods that you use to understand the world in which we live. So I I was really, really impressed by that. So what, what led you to kind of narrowing on those two components as your mission?
1: So the first part of the mission, boosting engagement and achievement among students from traditionally underserved backgrounds, that is kind of the story of my own classroom and what we were trying to do those first set of years among uh, students who had been underserved by the school system they were attending and through no fault of their own um, felt a bit behind and those were students who were so incredibly capable so incredibly talented worked so incredibly hard and did much better on standardized tests that we had relative to others before them but also now have gone off and majored in data science and gone off and, and studied these things and gone off and used data to empower their voices in various ways. And so that first part of the mission is pretty much tied to that. And what we've done is spread the curriculum across many classrooms across the country, including a lot in Title I schools, where teachers find that among students who are facing similar issues to the students that I was serving, where they're working jobs outside of school, supporting their family, have complex adult problems in their daily lives that they're they're dealing with talking about real issues in class, that about real topics is simply more compelling than talking about your more contrived examples that you'll find in typical text. The other part of the mission was more of a surprise to me after mm-hmm. launching the site. And the initial spread of the site was in and of itself a big surprise. So within like a couple of weeks of me putting up the website, we had a few thousand teachers signed up, downloading the lessons. Now we have twenty thousand teachers, and it's we haven't spent any money on marketing. This is all just word of mouth, teacher to teacher, using the lessons, liking the lessons, sharing with other teachers. The first summer that I launched the site, which was like summer twenty twenty peak pandemic time, I uh, got an email from the Exeter boarding school up in New Hampshire. You know the Harvard feeder.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And they were starting to use our lessons. And all of a sudden, you have my students on the South Side of San Antonio using the same lessons, talking about the same issues, using statistics and data as the students at the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. And they're all developing this common language through math to talk about issues that matter. A lot of them issues that my own students personally face, and maybe in our context, issues that students haven't personally faced but are interested in exploring more about and I think that the goal is among all students from all backgrounds to give them a more compelling version of stats and math that that talks about issues that no matter where you're coming from you're going to have to be thinking about because they apply to everyday life and what you're thinking about when you enter a voting booth what you're thinking about when you read the news what you're thinking about all the time and we live in such a divided time, I know it's a bit contrived to say, but it is true and and we all feel it. And the more that we can teach future citizens how to distinguish between correlation and causation, how to evaluate for a bias or a bias sample, how to look at a graph in their Twitter feed and see if it's misleading or not. The more that I think we can create a citizenry that, that can really Attenuate to what is real and what is not, what is signal, what is noise, and move forward through this era of complex information that has led many people to be misled.
2: I really love that that this is show, that you're doing both Algebra One, Algebra Two, and AP Stat. And covered in this, and you know I, I went and I, I signed up as a teacher right, on your site, and I've, I've been p- been playing with some of the lessons, and I really love the electric car versus gasoline car comparison question because I, I can well imagine a student thinking about what am I going to purchase? You know if I'm going to be in this time, what does it mean to purchase this? What are break evens for costs? What's the environmental impact? and I, I, l- I love that there's this, this element of both the, this, this in lovely introduction, the video introduction to the story. But then, then, sort of bringing it forward and, and saying, okay, support your decision. How do you understand? It? And it's all motivated that, no, it's, yeah, y equals mx plus b is, a, is this slope equation. That's, that's kind of this generic thing that students have been bludgeoned with for, for many, many years. But, but the fact that you're talking about sort of initial costs and annual costs, and you're, you're translating it into things that really resonate. And I, I, I just applaud you for that. And I, I, I want to know what lesson. Are students most surprised by, con- by the conclusion that, that they might draw from the analysis that they do? You've got these this collection in all these different areas. I'm just wondering if there's one that they go, "Wow, I didn't, you know." So, so in the electric car, when I'm thinking, it's going to take me like 10 years before the, the cost of operations breaks even, or that maybe a year in terms of environmental impact. But but what are some of the are there are there ones that the students go, "No way, you know, that, how could that be?"
1: That's a great question. and I think two most immediately come to mind. One is in the algebra curriculum. Uh, we have a lesson on student loans and compound interest. And the hook for the lesson is a tweet made by a person, I think her name was Sarah, and she just tweeted out, hey, I have, and I'm not going to be able to get the numbers off the top of my head right now, but it's something like, hey, I took out about 30000 in loans. I've paid $20,000 off of it. How much do I still owe? And we black out the number she puts at the bottom and students make guesses. And the most obvious guess, is you take $30,000 20000 you got 10000 left. And the amount she actually owes left is something like, And the compound interest for her loan has ramped up so much that um, slow payments over time weren't able to outpace the amount of interest that she was getting. And she, even though has made all these payments, owes more than the initial principal amount. And it's a really good window for students into the carefulness with which they need to make decisions about where do I go to college and how do I pay for it? And if I do take out a loan, what do I do with paying it off quickly versus not quickly? And that's a big shocking moment for them. Another one that is really, I think surprising to them is um, we have this lesson in the stats curriculum on attendance and test scores. And we talk about how, attendance in school is one of the strongest predictors of students test scores across school systems and that's for like middle school high school etc and because of that all these school districts have started these big sometimes very expensive attendance initiatives where they have like call programs for absent students uh they have attendance case managers Sometimes they're even like Uber and lifting students to school who, who otherwise didn't make the bus or something like that. And after these initiatives, what a lot of studies have found is that even though attendance improved a lot, test scores stayed flat. Mm. Test scores stayed flat. And that's like a big surprise for them because the whole lesson we to talk about the strength of correlation and modeling the correlation and, and making our formula for it and getting the R value and the R squared value it's so strong. And then you improve the attendance and nothing happens. Why, how could that be? And then we get into the reveal for the lesson, which is, well, it could be that attendance is causing test scores to go up or down, or it could be a third common cause between attendance and test scores. For example, if you experience poverty, Maybe you're also experiencing hunger, have less study time outside of school, and those things are affecting your test scores. And at the same time, you might not be able to attend school as often because you might not have transportation. So this underlying variable is simultaneously causing both things. And so you can fix the attendance. But if you're not fixing some of those underlying issues or helping students overcome those underlying issues, like the hunger, like having less study time through other initiatives, you might not be driving up the test scores. And unlike the typical correlation causation example, which is like, you know, Drownings and ice cream or whatever. This is something that's going to be a bit more subtle and really take students by a genuine surprise rather than kind of a more fun, but somewhat more contrived surprise.
0: What's next for Skew the script?
1: So we have been lucky enough to receive some funding to do some bigger projects, and we're very excited about them. One big thing we're hoping to do is expand the curriculum and our vision is to make relevant math lessons free to teachers for all secondary grade levels middle through high school that's the eventual goal and we're starting with doing a revamp of our algebra materials this year eventually we're going to move after that into pre-calc and then into other grade levels in high school and then eventually get down into middle school But we want to create a site where if you're a math teacher teaching any kind of secondary math, there is a set of free to access compelling lessons, take the stuff that you're already teaching and make it feel a bit more relevant. That's the big goal. And there's a lot of things we got to do in the meantime to get there, but that's, that's the big hope.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. This is so interesting, and I, I can't wait to get on the site and dig around, because I will also register as a teacher and look at these lessons. I will not be teaching them, but they might be helpful for my own edification.
1: Thank you all so much for your time. and Great questions. I really appreciate it.
0: That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Dash, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Dash. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stories at miamioh.edu. Or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.